Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to this webinar. We're going to be starting formally in just a moment. But before we do, I want to highlight a few things for you. There are three uh, key uh, innovations in today's webinar that are important for you to know about. Uh, first, uh, Craig Lesner, who is a senior manager at GFOA, is coming on to be the moderator for the, and producer of these webinars on behalf of CSMFO in 2020. So this is going to be his first uh, round in moderating one of these sessions, and I hope you'll be encouraging and supportive of him in, in that effort. Uh, Craig has a great background. He's you know, one of your own. He, he was a finance director in a local community in, outside of Chicago, worked in the budget office in the city of Chicago, so an all-around great guy. Um, the second innovation we have is that we're going to be using eight polling questions today rather than our typical six. So, so for those of you that are seeking to earn CPE credit, uh, you're going to need to answer six out of the eight questions. That's a 75% of the questions that's required by the uh, California Board of Accountancy. So please do pay attention to that. reason we're using more polling questions today is that the team thought it would be really important to get you as an audience more interactive and engaged around these ethical questions. The third innovation is that we're going to be using Poll Everywhere, something that I've used in, in uh, uh, formal presentations and in, in conference settings, but something that we haven't used in these webinars, so it's new to you. So I want you to take out right now your cell phones and have them at hand, because when we go to the Poll Everywhere uh, questions, you're going to be typing in an address. You'll get the instructions for that. You'll type in CSMFO. You'll get logged in, and then you can be responding. This is going to enable more engagement and more interactivity in kind of a discursive form uh, for this uh, webinar. So it's an important innovation. We want you to try it. We want to get your feedback. We really encourage you today, uh, especially to respond to the post-webinar survey. Uh, because we want to get your feedback on all of these innovations and on things that you'd like to see in the future. So with that said, I'm going to take myself off camera, turn it over to Craig here, and uh, wish you all well with this uh, great webinar that these folks have put a lot of effort into creating for you. So uh, get the most from it. Thanks a lot. Great. Thank you, Don. And so I'd like to welcome, again, my name is Craig Lechner, L-E-X-N-E-R. I'm actually with GFOA. Obviously, hopefully you're familiar with a lot of work we do. And if you're not, then this will be a great opportunity for you to see some of the stuff that we've been doing. Um, and we're welcome to Giving Voice to Values, a new approach to ethics. And this is the culmination of, you know, in, well, a very long time and a lot of work and a lot of effort, as you'll hear shortly. Um, with GFOA, as you'll see on the, the cover page, um, Obviously, this is a California Society of Municipal Finance Officers webinar, but a lot of the work that's done is grown out of GFOA work. And so we're sharing it with you today, and hopefully this will also tie into a pre-con session that you'll have with CSMFO's um, annual conference that we'll be talking about later. But with, without further ado, um, we'll get moving on to the session. And just to go briefly what the overview and the topics are and what our objectives are for today, you know, we're really looking to gain an understanding of this giving voice to values approach to ethical decision making. Um, and what exactly that means, obviously, we'll go into detail, but, you know, it's a different approach that you may or may not be used to, and, and we think it's a little bit more practical and, and hopefully more um, useful and effective. Uh, but you also learn how to develop some strategies to increase your public's trust in your organization, which at the end of the day is, uh, you know, one of the, the, the paramount things that we can do to ensure that everyone understands that we as finance directors and other types of public finance officers um, ensure that not only do are we good stewards of, of tax dollars, but we demonstrate and communicate that we're, we're following those, our own directives. 
Um, and then to that set, uh, on that note, we, you know, we're looking to develop a plan for responding to ethical challenges within your organization as they arise. And, you know, if, if you haven't been in your position long enough and you haven't dealt with ethical issues, sooner or later you will and you'll be well better prepared for it because of this session. And we also want to identify some specific actions you can take to stand up for your values when facing pressure to do the opposite. Whether you call it peer pressure or professional peer pressure, there's things we come across every single day that challenge us, either in our professional capacity as far as our skill set, our ethical values, what have you, and it, it's a challenge. And so these are one of the many reasons why we're having this session today. But we're also looking for you to gain some experience in putting your plan in, uh, in, into action and working through different scenarios and case studies. Because obviously one of the things that we're talking about when it comes to ethics or, or very, you know, broad concepts of what are the takeaways that you can go back to your organization with and your coworkers and work through and actually have um, productive progress in working through these sort of new concepts. And so today we'll, we'll have uh, three of the, the, some of the main people that have been working on this from the very beginning. Um, Shane Cavanaugh, a senior manager of research with my, uh, uh, one of my coworkers with the GFOA. Um, Patrick Hemker with the Director of Legislative Analysis with the King County Council, and Rich Lee, the Finance Director of the City of San Mateo, San Mateo excuse me, California. And of course, you, you all know Don and myself, Craig Lesner, um, and you'll be hearing more from me as these webinars continue. Um, but without further ado, and without any other questions, I'd like to hand it over to Shane, or I'm, I'm sorry, before I get a hold of myself, this rookie jitters. Um, we'd like to produce our first polling question, and you should be used to this one. How many persons are participating at your particular location? And I am going to do my absolute best to activate this poll. Poll must be closed to enable screen sharing. All right. So we are getting a few responses in. And obviously, if you've attended these webinars before, you know, one of the things that we really try to promote is while we're, it's absolutely fantastic that you as an individual are taking time out of your day um, to focus on these sorts of issues, um, educational opportunities and, and the like. One of the things specifically when it comes to ethics is working with your organization and with your coworkers. And so we're really promoting the idea of not only a person sitting at a terminal or a PC or a laptop or what have you, but also gathering some of your coworkers and making this more of a group exercise. And some of these, these are conversations you can have while you're going through the webinar, obviously, while you're on mute. Um, but really, that's a lot of where I think a lot of the value will come in this particular webinar, but probably other webinars as well. So we've got just about a minute having gone over for the poll. So let's close that out and post those and share. See if I know how to do that. I'm having some problems. Don, do you mind taking uh, over it for is just showing. a second? And... It is showing the results. Oh, it is showing. Gotcha. Okay. There you go. So, as somewhat predictable, you know, we have people from all over the place, but a lot of just yourself. But you know, again, even with that, that. Um, the discussion I just had, you know, obviously welcome. We thank you and for your time. And you'll have a little bit more work to do to explain what you're hearing about and, and, and seeing today to some of your coworkers. But as we move on then, let's begin our session with um, Shane Cavanaugh. And just briefly before we get started, um, if you don't know Shane already, and those of you who well, don't know second, Shane, I'm you should know I Shane. You need to hide the polls uh, so that then the uh, oh, sure. comes back. Gotcha. Thank you, Tom. Uh, polls and 
Yeah, we were back to normal. Getting the hang of it eventually. Um, but Shane is a senior manager here at GFOA and has been uh, developing um, the practice and technique of long-term financial planning and other policies that really focus on the long-term health and sustainability of organizations. Um, he started with GFOA's long-term financial planning and policy consulting offering back in 2002, which is much further than I care to recollect or how long ago that was, but that tells you how long Shane's been doing this. Um, Shane's been working with a ton of different governments of different sizes and types in financial policy and planning um, across the United States and Canada. Um, Shane's financial planning experience also drives a lot of his research. You may be familiar with some of his other books, um, Financial Policies, Design and Implementation, um, Financing the Future, Informed Decision Making. The list goes on and on. I will not bore you with it. But uh, if, like I said, if you don't know Shane, Shane spent a whole lot of time here at GFOA researching the things that we wish we all had time to do but don't because we have our day jobs. And so we really owe Shane a, a debt of gratitude for working on things like this. And without further ado, I'm going to hand over the controls to Shane, and he will share with you the new uh, viewpoints on ethics. All right. Thank you very much, Craig. And uh, thank you, everybody at CSMFO, for joining us on today's webinar. So my role here for today's webinar is to talk with you guys a little bit about GFOA's Code of Ethics. Um, the overarching theme for our webinar is giving voice to values, and Patrick is going to really zero in on that. But the basis or really the kind of foundation we need to understand how that really relates to our work as science officers is the new GFOA Code of Ethics. So um, one might ask, why does GFOA have a new Code of Ethics? And you can see on the slide that we really felt that the old code needed a refresh, um, just for example. Um, here, slide. Craig, do I have the controls here? You do. Okay, got it. My bad. All right. So the new code has uh, had not been updated in many years, so it is a number of years old. And not that that alone is a reason for update, but really more importantly, um, the code did not play a meaningful role in GFOA's trainings and certifications, which is what's an essential part of how GFOA operated, and we really wanted to change that because we felt there's really a need to focus on ethics um, going forward at GFOA. And um, one might ask, why is that? Um, and one reason is uh, trust in government has declined. So this little slide here is from the Gallup poll, and what they're showing us is the number of people who had um, great or reasonable level of trust in these various levels of government. As, and as we can see, all levels have declined since 1998, some of them rather dramatically. Look at the federal executive and legislative branch. Um, you know, you've got from 60 down to 40. Uh, state government, not doing too great. Local government, not as bad, um, 77 to 71. So that's, like I guess, still a C, but um, nothing to probably be overly happy about. So the point being here that trust is going in the wrong direction and uh, a new focus on ethics could be very important for turning that around. And on the next slide, we have another poll. This is from uh, Chapman University, and this is entitled The Top 10 Fears of Americans. And they do this poll every single year. And we see in 2018 that corruption of government officials is all the way over at the left, making it the greatest fear of Americans. So 50, um, or I should say 74, percent of Americans report being afraid or very afraid of corruption of government officials. Now, the real kicker is 
is that this is not a recent phenomenon. Corruption of government officials has been the um, was registered as the top fear of Americans for the last five years running in this poll. So I think that tells us this is a persistent, real problem and not just a kind of flavor of the month sort of thing. And perhaps a new look at ethics could be an important part for helping to resolve these fears or at least kind of mitigate them. All right, and uh, one more little quote. This is from our friends up north. Um, the um, former Governor General of Canada, David Johnson, mm -hmm. tells us the rule of law depends on trust. And if the rule of law cannot work, then um, democracy and our institutions are doomed. So that is a pretty stark um, statement. And I think, you know, really, again, makes the point that uh, ethics and trust are very important. And we're going to kind of see this trust, um, I guess, theme replayed throughout this presentation. Because really, um, GFOA decided to base the new ethics program around trust. And the fact that we did is broke trust down into a number of, uh, we'll say, elemental values. And how we arrived at this is we did interviews with GFWA members and asked them about their personal values, what drives them at work. And the top three personal values were essentially honesty and integrity, producing results for the community, and treating people fairly, which you see up on the screen as three of our five key values. And then through our research, we added diversity and inclusion and reliability and consistency. As the research was pretty clear that these two items were also important of parts of building a trustworthy relationship. So for example, um, with diversity and inclusion, the ability to show concern for people that are not like you, meaning who are in, you know, showing concern for people who are in different um, religious groups or maybe in different political persuasions or whatever else, um, being able to show concern for those folks um, marks you as a trustworthy person. Reliability and consistency is probably more self-explanatory as to why that is uh, an important part of being trustworthy. But really, these five elements round out what it means to be trustworthy and to build a trustworthy reputation. And the new code is, in fact, built around the idea of improving and maintaining a high trust in the finance officer. All right, I think uh, we are at the next poll. So Craig, if you want to jump in and help us out with how this works. Sure, so as earlier as, as Don had mentioned, we're trying poll everywhere. And so if you already have your cell phone dialed, um, text the, the, the word or letters CSMFO to 22333. Then once you join, you generally should receive a confirmation text to say that you have joined and then um, rank A, B, C, D, or E as an order of importance to you. Um, you could also, if that becomes an issue, you could also try going directly to polled.com backslash CSMFO. Um, you're welcome to put in your name. You don't need to. It can be anonymous. Um, and in just a minute then, we should be seeing some activity. I will be doing it myself as well. Oh, right then. Integrity and honesty is in the, in the front, is the front runner, which is a good sign. So obviously, while all of these importance, you know, whether or not one is more particular of importance than another could very well depend upon your past experience, um, whether it was your unique circumstances with your board or your environment, 
Um, there could be a lot of external pressures. It all depends on the situation, but I'm sure whether or not, you know, if A, B, C, D, or E, you know, they're all incredibly important to you. It's just a question of what do you tend to focus on a little bit more? Um, and those also tend to consider that, you know, what are the things that are within, uh, within your control? So obviously, you know, we're seeing A, integrity and honesty being, you know, one of the, the high vote getters. And that's something you can obviously control a lot yourself. Whereas, you know, maybe producing your ultra-procure community might be something that obviously you're may or may not be in the driver's seat, but in one of those important seats that help drive those results for your community. So a little bit more voting. Reliability and consistency is making a uh, it's making a, 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 a late run for it, but it looks like integrity and honesty is the way to go. <laughs> it's very close. Or very exciting, I should say. Not close. Okay, Shane, I, I think you can uh, move forward. All right, well, thank you, everybody, for participating in the poll. Appreciate that. All right, well, so kind of some of the reactions of the code that people have experienced is uh, more effective here. So we've got um, this is a quote from a real-life science officer, focus on aligning members' behavior with the value of the individual place on trust is distinct in comparison to existing approaches. I think this is a result in more successful retention and use and not rote memorization. So really, Joseph's point here is that the old code was really a list of do's and don'ts, and while certainly that has some value. It doesn't really fully address, I think, the many shades of gray that finance officers need to deal with. So having a more values-based approach um, offers maybe a different way of looking at ethics, and we'll see some examples of that as we get later on into the presentation. Um, next, down-to-earth and readable. Um, so I think here, Andrea's point is that, you know, we really try to make this simple and um, very easy. And in fact, I think Rich is going to talk a little bit about that, um, how that's worked in his city with the kind of a poster he's put up and other mediums that we've developed to make this as accessible as possible to regular everyday people. All right, and uh, now let's kind of get into the development of this code. So now we're kind of thinking about um, our code and how we can make it the best code possible. And one way to do that is to access the latest research on ethics and psychology. And one group that we want to work with, or that we did work with, is called ethicalsystems.org, which is a collection of the leading behavioral psychologists who focus on ethics in the country. And what we liked about this group is that their research is very practical on how ethics is applied in everyday real life. So let me just give you a couple of examples of that. So number one, um, research has recently uncovered over the past like decade or so. Um, a number of what psychologists call cognitive biases, and cognitive biases are ways, that kind of logical flaws in people's thinking, and these aren't, well, flaws is really the wrong word, because they're really a, just a natural part of how we live, and in fact, they have some benefits, but they are, we'll say, predictably irrational ways that people view the world, and they do have some implications for ethics. So, number one, um, a kind of maybe the most well-known of these biases is called the overconfidence bias. And just to give you an example from one survey, um, one survey showed that 50% of business people surveyed thought they're in the top 10% of the most ethical people. So we here in the uh, GFOA and CSMFO community are all numbers people. Um, those numbers do not work out. So kind of people 
overestimate their own capability as part of the overconfidence bias. Just to give you another example, um, one survey showed that 70% of people rated themselves as above average in leadership ability. Well, only 2% of people related, related, excuse me, rated themselves as below average. Another study found that 60% of people thought they were in the top um, 25% of, or I should say 60% of people um, thought they were in the um, top 25% of the ability to get along well with others, and 25% of people thought they were in the top 1% um, in their ability to get along well with others. So all these things kind of show that we as just human beings are prone to overestimate our own capabilities, including when it comes to ethics and maybe even trustworthiness. So we don't have a survey on trustworthiness, but if we were to have a survey on trustworthiness, it's probably not hard to believe that people may overestimate the level of trustworthiness that they have with other people. In fact, some other surveys show that um, only one-third of Americans believe that most other people can be trusted. So that probably tells us that um, most of us probably are not as trustworthy as we think, and that is probably something that we can all stand to uh, benefit from by working on. And that's what the GFY code is all about. Um, next point here from the research is the importance of social pressures in deciding how people act or determining how people act. So I'll just give you a little example here. Um, in this example, hopefully my thing shows up. There we go. We have this little experiment, um, and how this experiment works is we've got lines A, B, and C, and line X. And the subject of the experiment, so let's just pretend Craig, um, who you met, is the subject of our experiment. We'd ask Craig, Craig, tell us which line A, B, or C is the same length as line X. And Craig looks at this, and you know he's going to yeah, actually go B. So good. That's what Craig's going to do most of the time, right? Or we would hope. However, the way this experiment works is we've got a whole bunch of people in the room with Craig, who Craig doesn't know are confederates of mine. They are in on the experiment. So we ask all these other people first, and they all say A. And then it finally gets to Craig. And in about 75% uh, of the participants will at one point in the experiment agree that A is the same length as line X. So 75% of the time, someone in Craig's position will at one point agree with the crowd that, you know what, you're right, line A is the same length as line X. Um, when they debrief the people in Craig's position to ask, well, why did you agree that line A is the same length as line X? Some of the answers include, um, well, everyone else was doing it, so I just didn't want to rock the boat, so I decided to say line A. Um, other people say, well, you know, I thought maybe I was the crazy person and I needed my eyes checked and maybe so I just went along with everyone else. And you can imagine this is a situation where it's very black and white, right? Um, you can get out a ruler on your screen right now and figure out um, which one is the same length as line X. Um, but take ethics, you know, which is often filled with gray areas and um much less objective questions. Would rationalizations such as, well, you know, everyone else was doing it and I didn't want to rock the boat, um, you know, that might be pretty dangerous in an ethical situation. Or, well, you know, I just thought this was the way things were done. Um, you know, that would be kind of another kind of, I guess, analog to the, I, the reasons or the rationalizations people in this experiment gave, right? So it's really the importance of social pressures in determining our behavior and this has a great relevance for ethics. And Patrick, in fact, in his uh, portion of the presentation is going to talk a bit 
about um, how reasons and rationalizations are an important part of um, giving voice to values in that program. All right, so we're going to move on. Um, so the kind of next point here is that another kind of, I think, key element of our program for GFOA's ethics program is that most people know uh, the difference between right and wrong and want to be seen as ethical. So that's pretty important because it gives us a few, um, I think, levers here, right? So number one is our GFOA ethics program helps uh, make people more resilient in challenging situations and uh, more vigilant against unethical behavior from others by focusing on values. So just to give you an example from our research, uh, as part of our research, we, a little background here where our research comes from, you may find this interesting, is we surveyed um, the members of two state associations and we asked the members of these associations to tell us um, which people, which other of their peers in this association do they regard as the most trustworthy members. We then tallied up all the votes and had a list of the people who scored the highest as having the most trustworthy reputations. We then went and interviewed these people and asked them about to tell us stories of times in their career where they built or lost trust. And across those many interviews that we did, we were able to draw certain conclusions about what um, works for building or maintaining trust in a public finance office. So um, the, one of the examples that comes to mind for this particular slide and the importance of ethics is one finance officer had adopted a series of values um, to guide his decision-making on whether or not a behavior was unethical. So first kind of point was then a rule that he would look for is, is it illegal? So obviously that'd be bad, but if it's not illegal, um, is it immoral? And then if it's not immoral, will some or will um, someone get hurt? So the three things he's looking at, is it legal? Is it um, immoral? Will people be hurt? So one of the things that tested his ethics was um, the city was considering a new pension benefit that would have increased pensions uh, for the employees, but would have um, raised the long-term costs of local government and due to the rules in place at the time, it would have been legal to bury that information about the long-term costs in the back of report. However, the CFO thought, um, well, this is really not you know, how we should be doing things. We should be very transparent about the long-term costs of this. Um, despite the opposition of the city manager who was for burying it in the back of the report. Um, however, the kind of when he was testing it against his values there, yeah, maybe it's not illegal, but um, the morality is certainly questionable and definitely it will hurt the long-term financial health of the community. So he felt it necessary to report that increased cost up front. And this made a really positive impression on people. In fact, uh, that same CFO works at that very community today while that city manager um, no longer works at that community. So kind of number one, um, knowing what your values are and number two, living them. Um, was very powerful in that particular case, and we believe the GFA Code of Ethics and the Giving Voice to Values program you know, makes this strategy more accessible to all GFA and CSFO members. Right, moving on um, to the next point here is uh, anyone can face challenges or circumstances that challenge their ethics, and social support strengthens your inner angel. So just to give you an example here, and I think this is a great example for CSFO, in our interviews, a lot of our 
highly trustworthy finance officers really emphasize the importance of being involved in networks of other finance officers. So for example, a lot of them really encouraged finding mentors in the network. So if you run into an ethical situation, you may have a mentor who has maybe dealt with that um, a very similar experience before and can offer wisdom. Or even if they haven't, their accumulated experience may provide insights that can help you um, really successfully deal with those kind of ethical challenges. All right, moving on to our next slide. Is sometimes your ethics fail, so that can certainly happen, and bad behavior becomes more likely to be called out. Um, again, this turned up in our research as well. Um, one example was with a local government or a CFO who was early on in their career, they had walked into a new situation where there had not been a permanent CFO for some time, and the assistant city manager had been doing the CFO role. And as the new CFO came in, they discovered that the assistant city manager was taking kickbacks on um, purchasing contracts. And as a new person who's kind of early in their career, and this assistant city manager have been like a long time, well-respected employee, not so easy just to blow the whistle right away and say, well, you know, this guy that um, you know from a long, you know, many years is, turns out he's corrupt. That's probably not going to be believable um, by a lot of people. So the CFO took their time, um, generated the kind of the evidence that this was important, then brought it privately to the city manager and then maintained confidence while the situation was investigated. And ultimately, it turned out successfully where the assistant city manager was um, prosecuted and otherwise the situation dealt with in a legal and the correct manner. But kind of the point being here is having values uh, that are strong and um, also being strategic about how those are applied. I uh, was able to have the CFO was able to successfully navigate what could be a sticky situation. So moving on from here is kind of really the point of the kind of larger point in all these stories is that we're looking to change ethics from a constraint to an enabler. So rather than all of like um, a list of do's and don'ts and all those stories I shared, those were ultimately beneficial for the CFO involved. They all gained respect. Um, they all, in fact, they all got voted um, most trustworthy people in their state. So it's clearly working for them. Um, but having kind of a value-driven approach and then living those values is very powerful for really improving um, the ability of the CFO to do their job. Um, so for example, um, we've got, if, if you might be involved, if you're more trusted as a CFO, you're more likely to be part of important discussions and decisions for the entire organization. So for example, in GFOA, we often hear about CFOs um, being invited to decisions with financial implications after the decision has been made. The higher the trust, the more likely that you would be involved in those decisions ahead of time. Uh, number two, work is more efficient because there's more sharing of information. So people are willing to tell you things they might not otherwise. We've seen this a lot, for example, in our forecasting research where highly trusted CFOs are given kind of on the ground intelligence by departments if they think, see things developing in the community that might impact their ability to generate revenue or might cause higher expenditures, they're willing to come to the CFO with this ahead of time uh, rather than waiting to the point where it becomes a crisis, for example. And then lastly, more people are willing to take risks. 
um, so there will be more innovation. So if you feel that you will be supported in a kind of a risky venture, um, as long as it's not any responsible risk, but some risk, you're more willing, uh, you might be more willing to take that risk and risk is a necessary ingredient for innovation. So what I'd like to do with the balance of my time here is to talk a bit about honesty and integrity. We saw in particular, we saw that was the runaway favorite for the top value. And so in our research, we found quite a bit about how our most trusted CFOs were able to build their honesty and their integrity. So um, number one, let's move on to the next slide here. Oops, sorry about that guys. All right, here we go. All right, so the conventional wisdom is uh, trust takes a lifetime to build and seconds to destroy. So if you learn anything from this webinar, uh, please learn that that is incorrect. Um, what the research tells us is that really people's opinions on things are developed through what are called peak experiences. And what that means is that our opinions are based not on the overall average across years of say dealing with a person, but based on a smaller number of these peak experiences. And that could be high points, it could be low points, it could be transitions, like if you come in as the new CFO, that would be a transition. So what you do at the beginning of your tenure would be particularly important, for example, or if you had an internal promotion, you know, what you're doing as you're maybe switching into that new position and dealing with new people in a new capacity, um, that would be a particularly memorable point. So kind of the takeaway there is that these memorable peak experiences are what really impacts trustworthiness. So when it comes to honesty and integrity, um, we, identified a few peak experience points that were very important. And we've got them on our slide here. So number one was zero tolerance for unethical behavior. So kind of a story there from one of our trusted finance officers was um, in this person, a CFO, uh, was found out that a member of the police department had been overpaid in their paycheck by quite a large amount. Um, this was discovered by the finance officer and the finance office then had to go to the police officer and say, hey, you got overpaid, we need that money back. Um, and not just stopping there, but taking the police officer to task for failing to report it, because it was a fairly obvious mistake. It wasn't like $10, it was like you know serious money. And the idea that the finance office didn't just kind of, you know, um, we'll just say like um, defer to the police department, um, really kind of that they took this officer to task for perceived unethical behavior definitely got folks' attention. In this same local government, um, another experience the CFO had was another department head um, submitted mileage reimbursement for their personal vehicle. Um, however, they were also, were also given a vehicle by the city for personal use. So submitting mileage for the personal vehicle and they already had a city vehicle something doesn't add up. So the CFO confronted the other department head and the other department head said, well, you know, when I was hired, the city manager said, we can't pay you what you're worth. So instead we'll give you a city vehicle and you can reimburse, get mileage reimbursement for your own cars or like a backdoor um, way of getting more compensation. The CFO thought this sounded a little suspicious. So she went to the city manager and said, did you really come to this agreement? And the city manager said, no, we didn't. 
Um, and so it turns out this other department head was double dipping and the other department head was ultimately fired for doing so. Then lastly, in the same community, and people ask, really, this is all the same community? Yes, it's the same community. Um, a secretary in the finance office who had become personal friends with the CFO, uh, turns out that secretary was stealing office supplies and not just the occasional pen or like pad of paper or something, but like whole printer cartridges and for expensive laser printers and that sort of thing. Um, so the CFO found this out and fired the person, um, you know, pretty much immediately upon confirming this sort of behavior. And in all three of those cases, there might have been easier ways to go about it, right? The CFO could have just sort of meekly gotten the money back from the police department without saying much, could have like maybe decided not to confront a peer in the department head, or, you know, could have chosen to go easy on her personal friend in the finance department. But in all case, she demonstrated zero tolerance for unethical behavior, and that made a real, um, real, I guess, impression on other folks. Now, fortunately, not every example in our research involves heroically taking on corruption. Um, for example, just owning mistakes, that could be an example of a low point that's turned into an opportunity to build trust. So in one of our um, examples, one of the, a CFO earlier on in his career was responsible for updating the rate tables in the utility billing system. And the council approved a significant rate increase for commercial customers and a number of other customer types. But the CFO um, really essentially in error did not update the rate tables correctly. And the customers did not get billed, the industrial customers did not get billed the correct rate for a rather significant period of time. So they were underbilled for a significant period of time. So he could have said, well, you know, it was that intern you know, that we had last summer, we had had them update the rate table and like they screwed it up. Um, no, instead he said, you know what, buck stops with me, the rate tables did not get updated correctly and therefore we have underbilled um, these industrial customers. And took that information to the city manager and council as soon as it was discovered. And all three groups, the finance office, city manager, and council was able to come to a solution to go to those customers, explain the mistake, and um, get them back on track over a period of time. So it was ultimately okay, but the idea being that owning the mistake early, buck stops here, uh, made a big impression that um, this finance officer was really could be trusted. Even if they do make a mistake, they could be corrupt, uh, trusted to do the right thing. Another example from our research is delivering bad news well, and this is kind of another illustration of a low potential low point that could actually build trust. And in our research, we discovered um, three elements of delivering bad news well, which I'm going to share with you on the next slide. And those three elements are be prompt, be straight, and provide solutions. And what that means is, number one, um, be prompt, bring that information to people's attention as soon as it's discovered. Um, this is important for a few different reasons. Number one, it gives the people who have to act on information the maximum time to do so. So if it's kind of if you wait until it becomes a crisis or until a decision is needed immediately in some kind of emergency capacity, it puts the decision maker in a more difficult situation. If it's brought earlier, they have more time to act on it. Um, also, and this is actually really interesting, I think, in um, squares up with psychological research is many of our interviewees had a little mantra that they lived by, which was be first with information. And the idea being is they want to be the first person to share information with decision makers. And when I say this squares up 
with the psychological research is the research tells us that we as human beings are not discerning listeners. We tend to believe the first thing that we hear. And then other people that come along with different information or countervailing information have to dislodge the information we've already heard and already believe. So if the science officer is first, anyone who comes along later with a different story or misinformation has to then dislodge the correct information that the science officer has already put in place. So kind of that promptness or being first is a real important element of maintaining a trustworthy reputation. Next is being straight. So um, the, our interviewees emphasize the importance of not sugarcoating, not resorting to doom and gloom. Um, the idea being here that if you are discovered later as having sugarcoated or having engaged in doom and gloom, people may feel manipulated, which would obviously be bad for trust. And then lastly is provide solutions. So the kind of quote from our interviewees is to not drop the problems in people's lap, but rather come prepared with a solution so that people can see a way forward or a path forward from the difficult situation that you're telling them about. So just to give you some examples, um, one example comes from a city where the finance officer or the CFO discovered fraud happening at the front counter. And he at first was very embarrassed by this because he's the finance officer, this is his department, and there's fraud happening right under his nose, essentially. Um, so he was like, oh, so embarrassing. Do I report this right away? Ultimately, he said, you know, it is important to report this right away. So he went to the city manager and immediately and said, I've discovered fraud at the front desk. The next part is to be straight. So at the time, the amount of the fraud was only a couple thousand dollars. And so one approach would have been, hey, city manager, there's fraud at the um, front counter. I know that's not good, but at least it's only a couple thousand dollars. However, the finance officer knew that this, he had just started the investigation. So maybe there was more fraud. Um, it turns out he was very glad that he was straight and said when he delivered this news to the city manager and said that, well, it's only a couple thousand dollars now. I have not completed the investigation because it turns out later on that the full investigation discovered $60,000 worth of fraud. So by being straight and admitting that he didn't know the full extent of it up front, he saved himself um, definitely some potential embarrassment down the line. And then lastly, to provide solutions. Um, he worked very closely with the police department to investigate the fraud, developed a whole new internal control scheme for the department, and in fact now um, presents at some of the association meetings in his state about his experiences to help other local governments avoid situations like he experienced and was in fact voted one of the most trustworthy finance officers in the state. So he turned what could have been a very bad situation into actually a very good situation. And we're going to now move on um, to the next part of the presentation, where we're going to talk about giving voice to values. And Patrick's going to share a little bit about this method of uh, using values as the organizing framework for responding to tough ethical situations. Hey, Shane, before we transition, just a quick question. So, you know, a lot of our members and a lot of people in general, I think, whether it's in the context of what we do on a day-to-day -day basis or in our personal lives, but you're dealing with situations that, you know, can be very stressful very quick. And, you know, sometimes you come across a situation like the saying goes, all, all fair in love, politics, and war, or whatever particular order that is. But, but, you know, sometimes you run across a people or a culture where if it's legal, it's ethical. 
so to speak, and you when one equates the two, can you talk for a minute about, or do you have an opinion about how when you're addressing that sort of situation, you know, obviously you want to, this will help that, but you know, what, what sort of um, uh, uh, advice could you give to someone facing that sort of situation? Sure. Um, so I think there's quite a few things, actually. Um, so number one, <laughs> how much time we got, Craig? Um, but the, <laughs> so a few things. Number one, as Patrick's going to talk about with giving voice to values, step one is defining what your values are. Um, so if people don't know the values, it's very hard to act on them. Um, so defining those values would be a great start. And the Code of Ethics, I think, does an excellent job of that. So if you need a starting point, um, do that. Uh, number two is rehearsing. So Patrick will talk about this as part of giving voice to values as well, that as you say, Craig, that these conversations are often A, unplanned, and because it's just spur of the moment, and B, um, emotional. So it's not so easy just to um, provide this logically, you know, flawless response. And the key to succeeding in those types of situations is to practice. And that means kind of recognizing what some um, common rationalizations might be and then how to deal with those rationalizations. So just to give you an example, uh, one of the resources that we are going to share at the end of this webinar are some new model policies that GFOA has put together with, in fact, Rich's help, um, who's on the webinar. And these new model policies deal with things like, um, just for instance, taking vendor gifts, or don't taking vendor gifts, um, and also um, recording time, so correct recording of time at work. And part of these policies, what they do is they say, here are common rationalizations that you may hear for why people would say it's okay to ignore this policy. And you know, a very common one is, well, everyone is doing it, right? Um, so you have to have a correct, a know that is a rationalization that you will hear and then be um, able to respond to that rationalization. Our policies give a number of suggested responses to help people have in their back pocket the things they need to be ready to respond to those sorts of um, reasons why it would be okay to ignore the policy. And maybe the kind of last thing that I'll bring up is the um, idea that I think, Craig, in your point, is there might just be a broader environment where the it's very permissive of unethical behavior you know if as long as it's not illegal it's fine um in our research um with the most trusted science officers it wasn't all roses where like every situation was great and they were able to resolve it successfully um there were a number where it did not go well for them and they ended up resigning their jobs um, how you do that and when you do that is very important and in the resources we'll give you access to um, some mini um, podcasts we did where we talk about those stories and how they approach them, as well as some written case studies. So we have those available as learning devices for folks. But for now, I think the takeaway is that you can't win them all. And uh, there just may be situations where you're better off leaving and finding a new situation. And in fact, the finance officers in our research that did that wasn't easy, but they ended up on a much better career trajectory by essentially biting the bullet and moving on to a better and new future. Okay, well, great, thank you. It's just like in a lot of different things, you know, there are no easy answers, but, you know, in trying to navigate all this stuff, you know, we uh, moved to Patrick Hemmaker, who is currently the Director of Legislative Analysis for 
Um, King County Council, if you're not familiar with what that is or where that is, King County, Washington is the metro area, including Seattle and 38 other neighboring cities, um, as well as a large population of itself in unincorporated areas. Um, boasting more than 2.1 million uh, people, the area is obviously, you know, uh, home to some companies that you may have heard of, like Amazon, Starbucks, and Costco, and Boeing and Microsoft, and the, the list probably goes on, but those are the big ones. Um, but without further ado, uh, you know, Patrick serves as part of the team of analysis that charges, that's charged with the professional nonpartisan analysis um, for the elected members of the council. And he's been there with 14 years working on this stuff. So I can only imagine uh, how many ethical issues, of course, you know, nothing related to, to King County, but just, you know, personal life or something. But uh, um, how ethical ethics comes up on a day-to-day -day basis and how you navigate those, those dangerous waters. So Patrick, welcome and, and thank you. Uh, thank you, Craig, and good morning, everyone. Um, just by way of background, the Shane's um, presentation around um, kind of why um, GFOA felt the need to update the, the ethics code is a really good segue into the second part of this, which is GFOA very consciously chose not a um, policy like some like a CPA um, organization might have, or even ICMA, where it's based on reporting other people. Um, really what GFOA is focusing on is how do we grow ethical behavior kind of within the organizations? And so what that means for the case studies and for how to implement um, the new ethical, the new ethics policy or um, items like that is that we want to empower you as the practitioners with the skills necessary to act on your ethics. Um, many of you have probably taken either through your graduate programs or a webinar or at conferences, you may have taken um, a ethics class. Well, traditional ethics classes focus on what's the right ethical thing to do here. For those of us in government, Almost all of our governments, I don't, I, I always hesitate to say 100%, but most of our governments have an ethics policy. Um, they have clear guidelines on what the expected action is. Maybe it needs to be updated. Maybe there's an internal education piece of it. Like, do you know what your ethics policy says? Most people probably don't, but I bet your organization has one. The focus of this work, though, is helping people act on their values because they know what the right thing is. In other words, defense class um, or defenses for acting the right way within your organizations. And in doing so, in looking at the ethics policy, GFOA has endorsed a framework that's known as giving voice to values. And I'm going to move to the next slide here. Maybe. Craig, I think maybe you need to give me permission to move forward because um, it's is not reacting on my side. Um, the next slide though in the deck is talking about a specific um, type of, um, there we go, a specific type, type of um, skill set, which is um, giving voice to values. This is a um, concept that was started by a professor named Mary Gentile. Uh, Mary, um, and I'll stop here and do a quick commercial. Uh, Mary is going to teach a pre-conference seminar. I'm going to also be on the panel, and some um, California-based practitioners are also going to be on the panel. So th there will be a pre-conference seminar around this topic 
at your upcoming uh, conference in January. Um, and that's going to be much more in-depth. We're going to go through a three or four hour pre-conference seminar today in the 40 minutes or so I have left. So uh, take that into account. But giving voice to values has been called a self-defense class for the soul. And why it's described in that way is we all have been in situations where we know the right thing to do. We know we're being asked or expected to do something different. And you get that feeling of this is wrong, but you don't necessarily know how to um, do the right thing without getting in trouble. And I'm putting that in air quotes or disappointing someone who might be your boss, who might be a trusted coworker, who might be a friend that you work with. And that's what this, um, the focus of this work is, is helping people do the right thing. We're going to spend very little time as we go through a couple case studies today doing the traditional ethical analysis. It's actually going to be one of your poll questions, and there's about six poll questions in the second half. So there's going to be much more interactive than there was during the kind of uh, background session that Shane did. Uh, there's going to be one question on each one, and it's going to be pretty quick. We're going to go through these about what is the expected action or what is the, the most ethical outcome. But for the most part, we know the right thing to do. It's just really hard to do it sometimes. And so uh, as we move on to the next slide, what giving voice to values is, is we help people through the teaching of these principles implement and take action on their values. We don't spend the time focusing on, the, on that individual ethical analysis. As I noted, um, uh, Mary, is uh, she works out of the University of Darden, or University of Virginia Darden School of Business, and her practice started with private corporations. She's taught this type of thought process and um, skill sets to largely private corporations. And through her work with GFOA, she's really expanding, and um, GFOA is kind of taking taking the concepts and running with it to expand the, these concepts into the public sector. And all of the work we're going to do today and most of the work we're going to do in the pre-conference session in January is focused around, you know, really just three basic questions. What if I were to act? What would happen if I were to act on my values? How or what would I do or say to act on those values? And in what way could I be the most effective? Obviously, an answer in almost any of these cases is to kind of light the building on fire, right? Report everybody, go public, um, you know, kind of make your last stand. That isn't always going to be the most effective solution if one of your goals is to have the organization or my coworkers or the city or county or municipal corporation that I work for be a more ethical place. And so that's really what a lot of this work is focused on is how am I going to become the most effective in doing this work? Um, the, so we're going to jump into a couple case studies. What I'm going to do is go over the case studies. I'll go through them kind of step by step. It's spread over a couple slides because we want to give you enough information about this hypothetical um, to be able to answer some of the questions and think about it. We're not going to spend a lot of time going into in-depth options under, you know, everybody's gift policy might be three pages. This is going to be three slides. So take that into account. So here's the first scenario. Susan McMasters is the treasurer at a city in Ontario. She's attending GFOA's annual 113th annual conference, which was in L.A. last year. Um, she's also attending the conference with the city's finance director, John. John's her boss. Um, so as Susan thinks about this work, 
And Craig, I've lost control again. I don't know what happened, but I can't move forward. There we go. The city has a clear gift policy. Employees are not allowed to accept anything valued at more than $25 from any vendor or contractor for the city. Your policy probably says something like that, but then probably has three pages of exceptions because we're government and we like to do that. But for purposes of scenario here, $25, no vendor or contractor for the city. Leading up to the conference, Susan receives an invitation from the city's financial advisor to attend a steak dinner and the Angels uh, baseball game. Due to this policy, of course, she politely declined the event. Now, just as a aside, I have given this presentation a couple times in this in this scenario here. Sometimes people argue that the Angels aren't very good, and so therefore the tickets may not be worth more than $25. So that's just an aside. For purposes of this, let's assume that the fa it's face value that we're going by. So now Susan is on the flight to Los Angeles, and John asks Susan whether she's going to be attending the event. Um, and Susan informs John that under their policy, she just couldn't accept the invitation. John tells Susan that at conferences like these, everyone accepts those invitations, and she shouldn't worry about situations like that. The city's policy, he goes on to inform her, is aimed at stopping corruption and the awarding of contracts based upon nepotism or personal relationships. So Susan's dilemma here is, how to comply with the city's clear ethics guidelines and still remain on good working terms with her boss. So kind of the big picture questions we think about in terms of giving advice to values and how to promote good behavior, and then we're gonna get into some poll questions. But the overlying questions are, this is the quick one I talked about, what action is Susan expected to take under the policy, under the guidelines that have been approved by her council or by her city manager or county council or county administrator whatever the approval process is. What is at stake or risk um, to all involved? So who are the stakeholders here? Um, what is the reasons and rationalization Susan is likely to go through? Shane hit on some of these earlier. You see some of it coming directly from Susan's boss in this scenario. Hey, everybody's doing it. What other rationalizations are out there that are likely to come up? And then how should Susan act on her values or in what way can Susan act on her values? So think about those. This is the polling question, so I'm going to turn it back to Craig for a bit. I'm going to go over it as he's coming on. This is the quick one. This is the ethical analysis piece that we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about. What action is Susan expected to take through this? Now, when you think about this, um, there are lots of different ways um, to think about the um, scenario. Um, the every organization has a different policy. Everyone has different um, ways she thinks about it. Um, but really, the ethical um, outcome or what is expected um, is likely going to be pretty clear to most of you. So Patrick, just as we're waiting for some people to yeah. to answer the question, um, so you know, in in the normal everyday kind of circumstances, you know, and I and I know we're kind of going through this. It's can you just talk just very briefly about you know what what action is Susan expected to take, expected by whom exactly? What's the what's the framework or the the perspective? The, the, fr the framework doing? here is under her organization's ethics policy because that's really what we're framing this around. 
what is the um, okay. another another way of thinking about this? And this is kind of how we talk about it in a group setting: is what would a member of the public sitting in on her thought process expect her to action expect her to take as a public employee? Um, and I think when you think about it through those terms, because those are really what we're talking about: we're stewards of the public dollar and we're stewards of the public money. What is it that is the outcome that the public would want their public servants to have. And I think that's a good way of thinking about this. As I noted, every organization has their own gifts policy. Um, a lot of them look very similar. The dollar amounts vary. Um, but a lot of the principles that are in most of the ethics policies I've seen um, are all pretty much the same when it comes to when it comes to taking something of value from someone who's doing business or hoping to do business with the organization. So are the, now are they seeing the poll results that are on the screen now, Craig? So I can start talking about the results yeah. if they are. Okay, great. So 16% um, so actually expected Susan to attend the event. Now, that isn't surprising because one of the rationalizations that we'll see on the next poll is, hey, that's my boss. My boss says I can go. Um, it's not surprising at all to see that. The largest number, and this is the one that is 60% um, here, is do not attend the event. I think that's really what a member of the public sitting in on a conversation or sitting in on the thought process would expect. Hey, this financial advisor has a stake in Susan and John because they're working for the city. I don't think they should go take gifts from them. Um, and then the, the reason we put this next one in there, the 23%, um, is because a lot of a lot of gift policies have something like this. My own at King County has this as well. If I think there are um, uh, potential for me learning something from this um, instance, I might very well decide to go to the event. This one seems a little um, kind of entertaining, but a lot of times I get uh, invited to a dinner where there's going to be a presentation about a product or a service or something like that. My policy would allow me to go to that event, but I would have to pay my own way. So these, uh, these kind of, this is kind of the ethical analysis one we see. I always put in the um, tell John uh, she's sick and can't attend one, and that's a really interesting one to me. And especially in a group setting, it almost always comes up, and then that brings up a whole different question, which is, is it okay to lie in an ethics conversation? And I think the reason we talk about this one is the point of giving voice to values is not for you to purposely put yourself at a risk of um, retribution or retaliation if you don't feel safe in a space where you can have that conversation. What that also means is for us as managers, when we have an employee who wants to engage us on conversations about ethics, we need to not be defensive, we need to be open to those conversations because that employee is almost certainly going to feel um, at risk uh, during that time frame. So I think at this point we can move on to the next part, which is this is where we get into the, this is going to be a word cloud exercise. Um, and what we're talking about here is who are the stakeholders involved? We oftentimes think of an ethics decision or an ethics conversation as a discussion between the person doing the ethical, ethically questionable thing and someone whose choice is to report them or not. That's how it's often thought about, 
But really, there is a lot at stake in um, reputation. In um, well, actually, I don't want to. I don't want to skew the uh, skew the poll. So as we think about this, think about who is at stake or who the stakeholders are in this decision of whether or not to take a free gift from a vendor for the for your organization. So Patrick, we'll give this just a minute or so and we'll let people um, work through whatever technical issues. Obviously, we're getting some some responses. Word clouds are always somewhat interesting to see how they evolve as people answer. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And it's, it's really fascinating watching at the beginning because um, public being that big giant word in the middle is not surprising. What is good and why I like right. this um, exercise is you see how much broader the cloud is getting. Um, people are recognizing sure. that there's more at stake here than whether the CFO takes a free dinner or not. And that's a really good, as we go about doing our work and as we go about thinking how the work that we do impacts our community, it's really good to look at the fact that we are whether we realize it or not, every public employee is representing the public in doing in going about doing our actions. And I think that's a really important piece. Um, as this starts to kind of, it's still bump, bouncing around a little bit on us, but some, some clear themes are coming through. Obviously, the public is a stakeholder in this. It's the biggest word, if not surprising. The public wants their interests represented. And what they what they oftentimes mean by that as it pertains to this scenario is, you shouldn't get your contract with the city because you took its high-placed employees to a fancy dinner and a ball game. Um, probably for purposes of this, taxpayers and public, taxpayers is a pretty big word in that too. Taxpayers and public are probably the same group here. They're not always, uh, but in this case, they're probably the same. Employees is a big one. The agency, um, those seem to be kind of the biggest ones unless I'm missing a couple. I mean, I think it's really good to think about that is ethical behavior um, can spread and good ethical behavior can spread, um, bad ethical behavior can spread. And we've seen that through many of Shane's examples in the first part where he went through one organization that had so many ethical lapses. The same can be true in the other way. Um, if, if, as Shane's very last slide uh, talked about, if you promote good ethical behavior and you have zero um, and you have zero uh, tolerance for bad ethical behavior, the good ethical behavior can be promoted as well. So this is a really good word cloud. If we, if we were doing this live and in person, there would be quite a bit of, a, of um, debate back and forth about which of these were the most prominent. But I really like how this comes out in the, um, in the word cloud approach. And it's not surprising at all to see that the public was the, the biggest uh, um, kind of stakeholder there. Um, so thank you for that. It seems yeah. like it actually worked on the, the phones, which is really good. So if we can move to the next slide, I think I can do that. There we go. Um, all right. This is my favorite one because there is no wrong answer because it's rationalization. Um, so Craig's going to start driving here. What we mean by rationalization, I think it's fine just to open the poll up because a lot of people understand this. Um, we all tell ourselves stories. Whether we know we're doing it or not, we tell ourselves stories about why we can do something or why we shouldn't do something. 
Um, those stories can be very powerful. We gave you very little information about John or Susan or the organization, but in your heads, you were filling in the blanks. Um, you said, well, John and Susan don't get along, or John and Susan are friends, or, um, well, their ethics policy probably doesn't apply when they're traveling, or, um, you know, right down to John's my boss, he gets to decide if I can go and go or not. And so these are some of the most common um, rationalizations. And so go ahead and as you're thinking about these, go ahead and vote on these and we'll see where they land. But these rationalizations are really powerful because it is a way for us to tell ourselves the story about why it's okay to do something that from a more um, dispassionate perspective, we would know that's not true. Um, the reason we made the ethics policy so simple for purposes of this is because we don't want people to think what are the various caveats about why and look and look at those initial numbers that came up were right right across the board in terms of um, all of those might come up it's interesting to me actually that um, in for this particular group that nobody will ever know is actually pretty low because that's probably the most practically true we have you know if, if this was live I would do a little thing when I started which is how many of you were invited to events um, in, in coming to this conference, and I last did it for a big group at GFOA's conference last year, how many of you were invited to events that violated, that if you had attended would violate your organization's um, travel or gifts policy? And every room, every hand in the hand in the room basically went up. And I said, okay, who, how, how many people got invited to two? How many people got invited to three? How many got invited to four? There were a few people that didn't put their hands down until they got to 10 or 12. Um, and, you know, if you've been to any of these, whether you paid or not, a lot of people are at those. And so, you know, vendors are not in the habit of, you know, hosting events that no one attends. People are going to these. And it's really interesting to see how kind of all over the board they are. Um, I think it's 100% right the way this came out. Any of these stories, or actually how it typically goes down is multiple versions of this story get repeated over time. I'm not just rationalizing it one way, I'm rationalizing it four or five ways. So that's really what we're th what we're talking about here is now the hard part. How should Susan go about acting on her values? Now what we want you to do here is look at these answers, and Susan has now decided she can't go to the event. It's not ethically appropriate under their ethics or their travel or their gifts policy or actually probably many many of those different versions. Now though is the hard part. How does she do? the right thing and promote ethical behavior and do the thing that to her, I'm when I, you know, when I say right thing here is obviously a value-laden statement, but what we're talking about here is Susan has now decided that she can't go to this event because of the travel policy and the issues associated with it. How should she act at this point? And, and so go ahead and vote on that as we start to think about um, as we go through this. Um, and this is going to vary a lot based on what type of work environment Susan is actually in. We don't have any information about that, even though we're filling in the blanks in our, in our minds and telling ourselves a story. This is also where it's really important for us as managers. In this case, if Susan were to go talk to John about this, as she's tried to do once and he replied with his rationalizations, as a manager, John needs to be open to the idea that one of his employees is not comfortable with an action that he's doing. Um, 
so here's here's our results and this is um you know kind of what we would expect she's gonna the the, the best way to move forward and to promote ethical behavior is to actually have a discussion about promoting ethical behavior. So it's really reassuring that so many people have said acting on her actions is one thing, but she, but actually discussing it with John and talking about why is the opportunity there to have those good ethical um, behaviors expand throughout the organization. The other ones, and then those, the folks that answered the other questions are telling themselves a different story, which is, um, I probably can't talk, Susan probably can't talk to John here, but he should be reported if he goes because it violates our policy. What that means is you have the ethical um, expectation of your boss, but you don't have the um, assurance that you can have that conversation with him for whatever reason. And, and every one of us has a different relationship with those we supervise and with our own bosses. Almost all of us have a boss. Um, and the other two were, once again, make up a reason not to attend. Um, you know, that goes back to the uh, kind of, is it okay to lie in an ethics conversation? And I think that's, the reality is some of these answers are better than others because of that. But the purpose of giving voice to values is not to put people at personal risk as they go about trying to promote this behavior through their organization. So that was kind of the lead in. At this point, we're gonna go on to the second case study. And um, it's a little harder, but we'll also be able to go through it a little quicker because we've gone through some of the issues that are um, facing us before. Um, just by way of background, GFOA pulled together an ethics committee that helped write the new policy. And as part of that process, Shane pulled the members of the ethics, uh, ethics group that was um, uh, pulled together. Now, this is a self-selected group. This is people who chose to work on ethics. But we pulled that group. And the number one ethical dilemma that was faced by that group, and it was clear, it wasn't like a close second, was being expected to provide false or misleading information to your organization's elected officials. Now, as someone who works for my organization's elected officials, that's particularly troublesome to me. But from a governance perspective, almost all of our systems are built on policymakers having checks and balances over administrators. When you, when you, you, know, you call it something different in your organization, but they're all kind of set up the same way. So that's what this scenario tries to get to. Mike is the city's finance director. He's appointed, appointed by and reports to the mayor. It's an election, an, an election year. The mayor has asked Mike to uh, research a new tax proposal that would be levied to address the opioid crisis in the city. Uh, Mike and his finance department analyze it, the, the proposal. They provide a forecast of potential revenues and costs, but the program's new and the proposed tax is not something the city has used before. So both the expenditures and the revenues provided to the mayor have caveats, assumptions, and various hedges built in. The analysis Mike provides to the mayor that represents his group work has, <coughs> has ranges for both expenditures and revenues due to that uncertainty. However, when the mayor announces the new proposal, he only shares the highest revenue and the lowest cost projection. So he's only sharing best case scenario, and Mike knows those numbers are unrealistic. The only thing we know about most forecasts are, are they're wrong, and we're just the better ones are wrong by more by less than the good ones or the, than the poor ones. So Mike expresses his concerns to the mayor and is told that it was his responsibility to back the mayor's proposal. Finance completed its work; they provided the uh, information to the mayor, and the mayor made the decision. When the city council begins to deliberate on the proposal, the mayor sends Mike to testify 
due to his good working relationship with the city council and trust that they have in his department's work. Um, Mike is certain in leading up to this testimony there will be significant questions about the lack of a nuance to the projections as the council has been used to seeing you know, thorough work from his finance team over the years. So back to our same questions, what is the action Mike is expected to take? What is at stake for all involved? Uh, or who are the stakeholders? What is the likely reason and rationalization Mike is expected to go through? And how should Mike act on his values? So into our polling questions now, what action is Mike expected to take under, um, you know, thinking about Mike or once again using our frame of what should the public expect of one of their officials in providing information to the elected officials in their organization? And the options here are brief the council on the full analysis and just basically refuse um, to accede to the mayor's demands of how he um, uh, presents his analysis. Uh, brief the council on the mayor's perspective only, you know, in other words, follow his boss's direction. Um, only agree to brief the council in the first place if, if the mayor agrees with him about what he can present. Or uh, meet with council members individually and share the full analysis. So those are kind of the you know, bookends. Obviously, there could be other, other options as well. And if you have those, you can put those in through um, the other um, option. But these are really, this is a common, very common um, ethical dilemma faced by public officials, as noticed both through my work over the years, through the polling work that was done as part of our work through the ethics committee, and also just common sense. I mean, you have separation of government at most levels, um, and people who have the information like to control it, and people who don't have the information like access to it. And so those, these types of things are, often come up. So as we go towards our results, um, I, think, I think this group just nailed it. A member of the public sitting in, a, you know, sitting on Mike's shoulder as he makes this choice would expect the council to be briefed on the full analysis. Here's the dilemma, and this is where we start moving on to the next questions, which is, how does Mike do that? Mike works for the mayor. The mayor could fire Mike. Those are the big um, issues. So as we move to our next poll question about the stakeholders involved, um, that is a uh, that's a big question that really needs to be faced. Um, who has a stake? Oh, I guess we're going to do the rationalizations first. My apologies. So, what rationalization is, is Mike expected to uh, run into here? Um, is, is it the mayor's proposal, not Mike's? So, it's the policymaker's idea. Mike should back it. Um, essentially, don't ask, don't tell. Mike's job is just to answer questions. If the council asks then Mike might answer, but if he's not going to summer, he's not going to offer it up. Um, he might tell himself, hey, at least I'm giving him some information. The mayor's not letting me provide the full information and I work for the mayor, but at least I'm giving him something. Um, and then, hey, you know, all forecasts are made up anyway. Let's just stick with the facts. We're guessing picking a number is as good as picking no number. Um, and then my favorite one is someone who staffs the uh, elected officials and has for a long time is, that council won't understand my forecast anyway. My finance team put together a really thorough analysis. We used the fancy math. The council won't understand that. So what, are, what types of rationalizations, and please check all that apply here, um, but what types of rationalizations is Mike likely to encourage? And here I think, once again, we see kind of you know, we don't like to do all of the above because people check them. But when you start talking about rationalizations, I'm not surprised to see this at all. 
I am surprised to see though that last one is a little higher because we get that a lot. Um, but any of these stories can we can tell ourselves to justify um, our actions, and it's particularly hard for staff of electeds, staff who work directly and are appointed by the mayor, because staff I wouldn't say often, but your job can really be at risk if you defy the elected. Now, in the big scheme of things, um, and as we move towards um, um, I think we went back to five, Craig. I want to move forward to seven, actually, as we look at this. Um, so now, Mike, it, and Craig, can you jump in? Do we have the um, word cloud um, ready for this one or no? I think I, like I, to... I might have pulled that one just at the last minute, just in case. So it's not in there? No. Okay, that's fine, that's fine. Um, if you were to do a word cloud here, I think you would see a lot of different um, stakeholders than the first one. And what gets different here is you, you're now talking about a new public program, for example. You're talking about something that I'm assuming a lot of your California communities are uh, really heavily dealing with the opioid crisis, just like we are here in Washington State and uh, as they are everywhere. A program that gets off to a bad start doesn't just impact, this is no longer John and Susan arguing over whether John should have had dinner or not. This is now impacting people whose real lives are affected. This is impacting the nonprofit community, the health community, um, all of the taxpayers in the community. The stakeholders here are more, more varied and the impact here is also much higher. This is not just a reputational issue at this point. This is a real service um, impact to the community if this gets off to a bad start. So now Mike's in this position of what should he actually do? Um, the What is the best way for him to move forward with promoting his view to him of ethical action, which is to share with the council the information the council really needs to make a uh, question on this? So this is not something that doesn't come up. This is something that's very important. Um, so we'll give that just a few seconds to see if the numbers uh, change at all. But I think you've, um, you know, they're, they're not going to change. I mean, that, the third answer there is going to be the one that probably receives the most votes. I think that's a, a really good thought process. If he can get there with the mayor, he can stress to the mayor, for example, Mr. May, you know these questions are going to come up. I've worked with the council for a long time. Boy, is it better to get their buy-in into this program instead of having them mad at me or at you or at finance because we're withholding information. Um, I'm glad only 1% of the people said call in sick or just quit. That's a good thing because that won't help the, uh, the discussion at all. Um, and I think... You know, the last answer there, they refuse to conduct the briefing. That goes really to the personal relationship between um, the mayor and Mike. And depending on your organization and depending on how big your organization is and the structure, a lot of those department heads and appointed um, officials uh, have very strong relationships with the mayor that appointed them. And part of the reason they often get appointed is because of those relationships. And when those are strong, this is an opportunity to promote this good sharing of information and the ethical behavior throughout your organization. Um, so I'm glad that those poll results came in that way. Um, I'm a little sorry we're out of time. Uh, we just have about five minutes left to do the wrap up. 
but I did want to re-emphasize re that Mary, in doing um, the full presentation um, at your um, conference coming up in January, will be able to spend some more time thinking about these last questions for each of them, which is, how do I go about having these um, uh, conversations in a constructive manner? How do we go about um, bringing these issues to the forefront without exposing ourselves to unnecessary personal risk? What are some skills that we need to improve on or tools that we need to build to be able to do this work throughout the profession? Um, because it really does become work that spreads within our organizations and also work that we take to other organizations with us as we move throughout our career. So at this point, I, I think I want to hand it back to Craig for uh, the wrap-up. So thank you all for your time. Yeah, thank you, Patrick. And you know what? We, we haven't had much of an opportunity for, for Rich to provide some commentary. So, Rich, I was wondering, do you have any comments or, or, or advice for people, whether it's, you know, having those difficult conversations or just getting to a situation where you, you know you should do something and you, and everything's working against you, like in the case with Mike and acting on his values, or, you know, just having to have that conversation that we all have to have, you know, what, what kind of commentary or advice can you offer to, to, to the participants? Thanks, Craig. Uh, just a few notes about GFOA's new code of ethics. Uh, as finance officers, we are afforded the sacred duty to be stewards of the public trust and uh, the new code of ethics really articulates the values that are really paramount to building that trust. Um, uh, Patrick, you mentioned you know building relationships, and that's that's really key to us being successful as uh, finance professionals. Um, so we're building relationships uh, through trust uh, with members of the public, our uh, colleagues, and uh, more importantly, elected officials. Uh, kind of two takeaways for me uh, from this presentation. One is that we are often faced with situations and decisions, uh, both small and large in magnitude, that are or simple or complex in nature. Uh, no policy can comprehensively address the infinite variety of ethical dilemmas that may come up. Uh, GFOA and CSMFO recognize that. Uh, in fact, uh, CSMFO at its last board meeting adopted the, um, the Code of Ethics. Um, really outlines practical everyday standards that we should all aspire to and live by and to allow them to guide us in our decision making. Uh, the second takeaway uh, for today for me is that trust is earned and it is the most valuable asset that we will ever have in our careers. Uh, thanks for the opportunity to chime in. Thanks, Rich. Uh, thanks very much for the commentary. I, I think it, it, it really does help to as many voices as we can have to help people understand one, and then to connect the dots to bring this to life a little bit in their organizations. I think it's going to be, you know, incredibly helpful for people. But you know, on, on that note, we just want to leave you guys with um, a couple of action items because obviously, you know, as you go about your careers and you read about all these great things, whether it's budgeting for outcomes and performance management or ethics, right? We all want to know that's great. It sounds great on paper, but how do I make it, you know, really come back to life? Um, and so one of the things that we obviously uh, we can do is just post a new code. 
share it, right? Distribute it. Have people looking at it. You know, whether or not they agree with it or, or even understand it at first, it's just, number one, let's just get it out there. And number two, discuss the new code with your colleagues, whether, you know, people that are sitting next to you listening to this webinar or watching this webinar, you know, you already have the, the, the you know, the leg up on, on that process. But, you know, if you're doing it by yourself, go back to Finance Staff, print it out and say, hey, you know, there's something new here that maybe we should be talking about and discussing. And that's a department head, city manager, whomever, excuse me, whoever you think is obviously, you know, relevant to that conversation and in a position to have an impact. You know, review the model policy as an initial guide, but keep in mind that this is very much while, you know, where we have this, this template and this model, and Rich has a copy of it printed out. You know, this is something that we that we understand is it, it's cultural and, it, and contextual, and it, and it has to make sense for what your organization is, and it's not just one, two, three, do these three things, and you're good. It's how do you, you know, take this upon yourself and, and mold it into something that works for you as an organization. Um, and then as I mentioned earlier, um, attend the team um, to the CFMFO's pre-con session, giving voice to values, and you'll notice um, on this one page, we've got a, a, a hyperlink that will take you directly there if you don't already have that information, or if you're not already registered to attend the conference, it's a great opportunity to get more involved and uh, see a little bit more than maybe just an hour and a half webinar um, that you take time out during your obviously busy day, but you know, something that you can get a little bit more immersed in. And then also tap lessons from the field to, to boost trust. And where we get into our next uh, page is some resources that help you do that. You know, GFOA on our website has the uh, code of ethics that you can go through. There's a lot of good information on that website. Um, you know, get your personalizable ethics poster, which just, you know, it allows you to put in your name or your organization's name and, you know, do some other things with it. There's also what we call the trust audio series and white paper series, which was more in the newsletter. But we have a link here that goes directly to podcasts that talk about, you know, different concepts of earning trust and sometimes losing trust and how do you recoup that. Um, but also keep on the lookout for, for um, giving voice to value courses and materials online from GFOA and potentially even through CSMFO as we develop this a little bit more. Um, but we also we want to give you as many opportunities as possible to not only understand what this is, but to learn how to use it better in your organizations. Um, of course, we have some direct links to some resources we mentioned throughout the, the webinar. Mary Gentile from the School of Business. Um, a link to her, some of her research, a little bit more information on giving voice to values, crucial conversations, and of course, as mentioned earlier, the ethics code, um, which is duplicative of what we had it on, but it's that important, we put it on twice. Um, I'd like to really thank everyone today, uh, Shane, Patrick, and Rich, um, uh, for all their hard work in making this uh, a, a very productive and fruitful conversation. Um, of course, it goes without saying, although we will say it's Don for his literal decades worth of work in helping um, CSMFO broadcast information and educate our members on things not only on ethics but on investments and, and everything in between. And so we owe him a great uh, amount of gratitude. And, and if you're like me and have had the opportunity to spend some time with Don and just learning how he works these webinars and, and how all the magic happens behind the scenes, there's a ton of work that goes on that uh, Don makes look easy, and so yeah, I definitely personally thank Don for all his help, and and uh, I thank you for your time today, and I look forward to working with all of you in the near future. Uh, Don, do you have any uh, parting thoughts or, or, or comments? Don, I don't know if we can hear you. Oh, there you go.
Craig, there's also a last poll question before you start to lose people as well. Oh, very good. I, oh, sorry, I was on mute. I forgot <laughs> my own technology here. Uh, so I want to thank you, uh, Craig. You've done an outstanding job. It's clear that these webinars are going to be in good hands with your uh, production and, and moderation of them. So thanks for the excellent work. Uh, looking forward to the last polling question here. And I do want to encourage everybody today to uh, be sure to take the time to do the uh, post-webinar uh, survey. Uh, it's very important, especially with the transition here, to get as much feedback as possible about these webinars uh, to CSMFO so that it, leadership under uh, Laura Nomura and the Career Development Committee of 12 volunteers that work on identifying topics like this and working with the presenters and other things have as much feedback uh, as they can about you know, what's important to you, uh, how this is working, uh, and everything else. So if you haven't responded to these uh, post-webinar surveys in the past, please do so in particular on this one uh, and uh, give some thought to how this new opportunity with uh, GFOA providing uh, production and moderation support for the webinars uh, can be an opportunity for CSMFO going into the future. I'm excited about those uh, opportunities and the potential for uh, this program to be even stronger in the future. So let's take a look at how our, the audience responded to the uh, polling questions here on the final value for today. Well, you can see that the team did a great job in, in hitting the objectives uh, for the session and uh, and really sort of working through the case studies. And that's, again, uh, something we want to highlight about the pre-conference uh, webinar, uh, not webinar, but session uh, that you can attend. And hope you'll bring your team to that. I'm looking forward to seeing many of you there. I'll be doing speed coaching and I'll be doing the interviewing sessions uh, and helping people develop and prepare themselves for their next uh, career opportunities there. So I hope to see many of you there as well. So let's go to the final uh, slide on the resources and where people can find things. And of course, you're all going to get the automated email addresses at the end um, so that you can uh, find out in the next day or two uh, you know, where you can access uh, the additional materials that have been prepared for today's session. So thanks, Craig. Thanks, team. Great job. And uh, hope you all have a wonderful thanks, holiday. Everybody. Thank you, too. Take care. Bye-bye.